A reading from the Gospel of Luke. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light, for, <clears throat> a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of your, to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up <clears throat> at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be at my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The Gospel of the Lord.
Almighty Father, you did a remarkable thing in, um, in Simeon and Anna um, that they were uh, poised to, to recognize Jesus. Um, what a remarkable thing. How did they do that? Um, Father, we want to be a people who recognize the unfolding, your unfolding story. We want to be people who recognize Jesus and with Simeon are able to say every single day, Lord, we can depart in peace because we've seen Jesus. We want to be a people who are deeply fulfilled in knowing Jesus. Um, and uh, Father, we're in different places on that. Um, some of us are feel like that that, that, ex that describes where we're at and some of us um, aren't even sure what that could possibly look like or mean. But you know all about it. You know us deeply. You know where we are. You know where you want to take us. And we ask you uh, to powerfully work within us, between us, among us in such a way that each of us is brought to a place of seeing Jesus clearly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, have a seat. Uh, take a look at that gospel reading. That was that second reading um, that goes on for a little while, the one where um, um, Jesus, um, little kid Jesus, isn't that a great story? Um, sadly, that's not the story we're going to be talking about, um, but I, I kind of want to preach just on that one. But we're, we're, we're going to focus on the first part of it uh, for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, but you can ask me later. But right now, what I want you to do is I, I, we get to introduce, uh, I, I get to introduce you to two extremely compelling people. Um, look at that, uh, the first part of the reading, and just start with this woman called Anna. So Anna, we're continuing our, our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're, we're getting to the end of uh, chapter 2. Anna is now the third woman in the first two chapters with prophetic gifting. Anna is actually named the title. She's called a prophet. Um, and Anna is a fascinating woman. Everybody say, hello, Anna. There we go. Um, Anna's a fascinating woman because she's lived a really painful life. You know that because uh, she, it, it, Luke tells us that she was uh, married as a young woman. Uh, for something like seven years, and then she was widowed. And it's a little difficult in the text to know exactly how long uh, she's been a widow, but suffice it to say, it's been the vast majority of her life. And she's very old now, at least 84, and she's been a widow for the vast majority of her life. Now, that's a huge deal in... Um, you know, 2,000 years ago, because remember that being a widow was a social catastrophe. It was a catastrophe for many reasons. Part of it was uh, you were economically extremely, uh, you were likely to be economically destitute. And in part because you were economically destitute, but not just because of that, you were also very often socially vulnerable. You're easy to be exploited. And so being a widow in this context, in this culture, was the sort of thing that made, it, it, was, a, it was a worst case scenario. It was the kind of thing that made people look at, look at a widow and say, oh no, please don't let that happen to me. And that's been Anna's life. However, if you look at the reading, one of the things that 
things that are just striking about Anna is that she does not carry herself as somebody to be pitied. Do you see that? She's in the temple all the time, and you sort of get the sense that she walks around the temple a little bit like, uh, like with a high level of confidence. Like she kind of walks, I don't know if this is true for sure, but you sort of think that she walks into the temple, walking around there, and this is her home. This is where she belongs. She kind of walks with a certain uh, gravitas. Um, very often, sanctity and suffering can combine together to impart a dignity that transcends social convention. And I think that's happening with Anna. And Anna, in our reading, she's got a message for everybody, right? She's just met this kid, uh, and she's telling everybody who will listen about this kid. And my question is, what is it that explains uh, her joy, her boldness, her sense of mission? Uh, she may be old, but she's not done, right? Um, and I think that's fascinating, and I want to know what it means. But then consider... Uh, Simeon, everybody say, hello, Simeon. Now, Simeon is a little bit like Anna. He's old. Uh, but he's been waiting for something called the consolation of Israel, verse 25. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But consider this. It means the fact that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel means at least that Simeon knows in a deep way that his nation is a mess. And that his nation and the religious institutions are in need of radical comprehensive reform. Now, here's one reason why that's important. It, it, it means that in a deep way, Simeon has good reason to be cynical. Uh, he's seen a lot of life. He knows the corruption of his nation. And when you've lived a long life and you've seen a lot of corruption, there it, don't you expect somebody to be just a little bit jaded? But what's so compelling about Simeon is just like Anna's full of boldness and mission, Simeon is full of hope and fulfillment. And, and the, you know, he's not naive. He's not a utopian. He's not like an optimist or an idealist. He's not putting a happy spin on things. But he's also, there's not a hint of cynicism about Simeon. Anna and Simeon are full of joy right at the end of their lives. They are profoundly fulfilled human beings. They are deeply purposeful human beings. They're flourishing. And I want to know why. Why? What explains, despite the suffering, despite the difficulty that they've clearly experienced in their lives, why are they flourishing so much and why are they so profoundly fulfilled? And here's what I want to argue. Uh, I want to say that uh, Simeon and Anna flourish because they're focused on one central goal, one goal that animates all other goals in life. And at the same time, um, they are focused on a mission that animates all the rest of life as well. Now, let me explain what I mean and start with Simeon. So remember the scene. Um, we are in the temple in Jerusalem, which is the most holy place in all of Judaism. And Joseph and Mary uh, bring Jesus, who's still an infant, infant at this point. They bring him to the temple in order to uh, go through the various uh, rituals which any Orthodox family is going to go through um, when they've had their firstborn son. 
And there in the temple, um, Simeon sees this kid, and he he realizes something remarkable and very strange. Simeon, this old man, is convinced that, follow this, that meeting this kid is the single most important event of his life. Seeing this child for Simeon is the goal of his entire life. Seeing this child backfills his whole life with meaning and significance and fulfillment. And that's why in verse 29, he composes a prayer, friends, uh, which, by the way, is the evening prayer that the Anglican tradition asks everyone to pray every single night before you go to bed. Curious. He says in so many words, Lord, I can die a happy man. Lord, my life is fulfilled. Lord, my life is concluding with peace and serenity and fulfillment. Why? Because God, you have kept all of your promises. I have seen this child, and in seeing this child, I am watching your unfolding salvation in history. I'm good. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine uh, getting to the end of your life and looking back and concluding that every goal that really mattered in your life uh, was met and fulfilled in such a way that you are perfectly satisfied with the full with the story of your life. Can you imagine that? I think that's a good gig. Uh, now, how, how does it work for Simeon? Well, to understand what works for Simeon, we need to fill in a backstory. Um, and this is where the consolation of Israel comes in. Remember, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, think about the story of ancient Israel uh, for a minute. Um, ancient Israel's story and their identity was built around a goal and a mission. And the goal was uh, at least to know God in a way that really no other nation did know God. But on the other hand, their mission was, and it was a little unclear how this was going to play out, but the mission of Israel was on the one hand to know God in a very unique way, but on the other hand, to know God in such a way and to serve him in such a way that somehow they were going to end up sharing their unique relationship with God with all the other nations of the world. But it was a little unclear how that was going to happen, but that was the plan. Now you can see this, both this goal and this mission in the ancient temple in Jerusalem. Uh, for instance, uh, we have an ancient prayer from King David, something like a thousand years before Jesus, um, and it's recorded in uh, what we call the Book of Psalms, number 27, um, and King David is writing about his life. He's writing about his highest aim in life. Now, if you're a king in the ancient world, what's your highest aim? I don't Get all the bad guys. Um, help me keep power. Uh, I don't know, get reelected, whatever it is. They didn't get elected, but you know. But here's what he says. Listen, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and this will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that's the temple, or the precursor of the temple, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. 
the temple and its precursor was where Israel went to meet with God and where their primary goal to see God or to know God was fulfilled. The single highest goal of the nation was to see God, not to see him physically. That's very important. If you went into the center of the temple, there's no image of God there. They didn't see God physically, but they they went there so that they could know God well enough so that they were compelled by his power, compelled by his love, compelled by his mercy, compelled by his goodness, or more briefly, so that they could see his moral beauty. When you see beauty, your soul is inclined and captivated by it. And yet, in a remarkable way, when you really see something that is incandescently beautiful, you sort of forget yourself, if only for a moment. And when you see the beauty of God, it means that you're trusting him, and your hope is in him, and your love is starting to be attached to him, and you begin to be decentered in life and God himself becomes the center. Now, that was Israel's goal, and that happened in the temple. But on the other hand, the temple was also meant, again, a little in a little hazy way for the rest of the world, non-Israel. And we know this because of uh, David's successor, Solomon. Solomon uh, renovates and builds a new temple, and he, when he dedicates his temple, uh, he prays that it might be a place of prayer for all nations. And the point there is that Israel was meant to go to the temple because Israel, that was where Israel could, so to speak, see by faith God's beauty most clearly. But it was also meant to be a place, a kind of embassy of God amongst the nations so that non-Jewish nations, we call them Gentiles, could come and see something of God's beauty too. The God of Israel might not have been part of their cultural past up until that point, but if they went to the temple, they could... uh, In a way, God could be part of their cultural future. And so the temple was something like a lighthouse to the nations. It could lead the nations, uh, non-Israelite nations, to see something of God. It was a light to the Gentiles. Now, that all sounds fine, but there's a problem. And here's the problem. Israel had very high ideals Um, but they almost never lived up to them. Uh, The temple had a high goal and a remarkable mission, but the temple as an institution was plagued by corruption and hypocrisy generation after generation, and it was plagued by these things so severely that the temple often ended up distorting God's beauty rather than displaying God's beauty. Now, pause here for a second, Emmanuel. Have you ever heard of a nation with high ideals that doesn't live up to them? Have you ever heard of a religious institution with a great mission that doesn't live up to it? I think we can identify with Israel a little bit here. And I bet we can also identify with this. There came a point in Israel's unfolding history when Israel's failure seemed so egregious and so consistent and so catastrophic that recovery seemed no longer plausible, that cynicism about Israel and about the temple just seemed to be what 
a realist. It just seemed to be the position of a realist. It just if you're really, if you're really in touch with the real world, you're going to look at the temple and you're going to say, failure. I'm out. But here's the crazy thing. That is precisely the moment when God began making these remarkable promises through the Old Testament prophets. For instance, prophet Isaiah, we read an excerpt earlier. Prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which is 800 years before Jesus, something like that, said that one day God's going to send this person, a little bit of a shadowy figure called the servant, the servant of the Lord. And this servant, the servant of the Lord, on the one hand, seems to be an individual in Isaiah. But on the other hand, this servant of the Lord in Isaiah, more than our excerpt, this servant of the Lord seems to bear the payload of Israel's national mission. Even though the servant is an individual, seems to bear the payload of the whole nation. But it, the servant also seems to bear the payload of Israel's failure as well. Both the payload of Israel's mission and the payload of Israel's failure both seem to rest upon the servant in the book of Isaiah. And somehow, according to Isaiah, God's going to use this servant to rescue Israel, to save Israel, uh, even from their own corruption, especially from their own corruption, and at the same time, this servant is going to become a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Now, keep all that in your mind and bring it back to Simeon. Because if you could take all of Israel's history and take Israel's goal of seeing God and Israel's mission of sharing God with the nations and then take the catastrophic grief uh, of their corruption, and then also the expectant hope of God's salvation. And if you could take all of that and squeeze it into one man's prayer, you would have Simeon. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And with that in mind, can you go back to the text and can you begin to see why Simeon's whole life is fulfilled by seeing Jesus and then sharing Jesus? I don't really know how it happened, but one day, um, Simeon was in prayer, and somehow God made him profoundly, deeply confident that he was going to personally meet God's servant from Isaiah. He called him God's Messiah, God's Christ, and that, that was going to happen before he died. And then one day, I don't know how it happened, he was in prayer in the temple and he became deeply confident that this little child in the arms of a young woman from Nazareth was the one upon whose shoulders he would bear the weight of Israel's mission and of Israel's failure. And so in that moment, he took Jesus up into his arms and you can only imagine the tightness with which he held him. Because he knew that looking at this little child, the deep purpose of his life was fulfilled because he was looking at God's salvation in person. He was looking at God's beauty in person. His life was fulfilled, the purpose of his life. And yet there's more because he was gazing on Jesus inside the temple, which is very important. He was gazing upon God's beauty in person inside the temple. And so that means not only was Simeon's individual life fulfilled, but the purpose of the temple was fulfilled. 
And yet there's more, because Simeon is looking at God's beauty in person in this little child, Jesus, and he's doing that as an Israelite. So therefore, in a remarkable way, Simeon looking at Jesus is fulfilling the purpose of the entire nation, and that's why he calls Jesus the glory of Israel. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we're supposed to pray his prayer every night before we go to bed, because the purpose of our lives is to see Jesus. And when you have read of Jesus in the scriptures and when you place your trust in him, the whole purpose of your life is fulfilled and you can go to bed every night saying, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word because mine eyes have seen your salvation. But there's more because he also knew that this Jesus was meant to be a, a lighthouse for the other nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He knew that people who had never known God in their past could meet Jesus and know God in their future. It all comes down to looking at Jesus. And that brings us to Anna. Why does Anna start talking to everybody about Jesus? Well, I think, I think Anna was a pretty bold person. I think she probably, you know, had a message for a lot of people. But... She tells other people about Jesus for the same reason that Simeon praises God. Anna somehow knows that seeing Jesus is the goal of her life and the goal that animates all other goals, but she also knows that sharing Jesus, speaking of him to others, is a, is a mission that animates the lives of other people. And so here's Anna. She sees Jesus. She begins to tell other people, and she's fulfilling Israel's mission as well. And she's anticipating the mission of the church, the disciples of Jesus. Now, all of that brings us to our church today. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, do you remember our purpose as a church? I'm never going to tire of this. Do you remember how we say it? Emmanuel exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. Why do we say it that way? We say it that way because we're trying to capture something that Simeon and Anna knew at a visceral level. Think of it this way. Humans, all of us, uh, live, we want to live meaningful lives, don't we? We want to live lives of significance. We want to live lives of meaning, of we want a calling, a vocation, a mission. We want all these things. And that desire for a meaningful, significant, and fulfilled life is a desire that is very close to universal. But isn't it true? The fulfillment of that desire is very rare. Why? Well, we all have different tactics for reaching out and trying to grab meaning, significance, and purpose in this life, right? For some of us, we're, we're, we're achievers and performers. And the idea goes, um, <clears throat> we, we never say this quite out loud, but we live our lives as if uh, achieving, the more we achieve, the more we'll be fulfilled. Uh, and it's a plausible, it's a plausible tactic. And it usually works for many of us uh, a little and for a short time, but here's the problem. In trying to achieve and gain fulfillment through achievement, it's a little bit like a narcotic. Uh, it feels great when you're high, but you always need another hit. 
others of us are not primarily performers or achievers, but what we try to do is we look within ourselves and we try to discover authenticity. So the idea goes, if I can look within myself and if I can find the real me and if I can live in line with my true self, then I will find fulfillment. Again, it sounds really, really plausible. It feels plausible. Uh, but it is also, it, it, it's a troublesome path for many reasons. But part of the problem is this. Um, the authentic self uh, is devilishly difficult to discover. And part of the reason is the more we look, the more our self changes so that it's always a moving target. And we're never quite sure we've got it. We grasp for it and it slips through our fingers again and again. And very often we're left not with fulfillment but with debilitating anxiety. And I think if Simeon and Anna were here, they might say something like this. Uh, those of us who are searching for the authentic self, it's like somebody who's running well and running hard. But we need to change and refocus the finish line. I think Anna and Simeon would say something like this, you are right that fulfillment is gonna come by knowing and being known in a deep way. But I think Simeon and Anna would say, that we're wrong to imagine that it's primarily about knowing self. We were designed to be known by God and to know him back. And that God made himself knowable in Jesus Christ so that in knowing Jesus, that is precisely where our self will find coherence. And I think to the achievers and the performers among us, Simeon and Anna might say something like this, your addiction to achievement is like someone who's running well, but we need to redefine the goal. Achievement, I think they would say, is good. And, and in fact, God is going to give you a mission to which you must give your best energies. However, it is ultimately Christ's achievement for us that give our efforts meaning and lasting value. And therefore, whether we tend to be an achiever or whether we're, we tend to seek for authenticity within ourselves in either place, I think Simeon and Anna, with uh, having seen the unfolding of Jesus's life now, would say, you've got to remember that Jesus must bear the payload. Jesus bore the payload of Israel's mission and Jesus bore the payload of Israel's failure. And therefore, we must trust him to bear the payload of our failures and of our achievement and of the pursuit of trying to find out who in the world we are. And that when Jesus died upon the cross, we must see that he bore the penalty of all our sin and all our failure and all our evil. And then Jesus rose again. And when he rose again, he promised the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that worked in Simeon and in Anna so that they were able to recognize Jesus. And when Jesus sends that Holy Spirit into our life, we will recognize Jesus and our work and our mission, our achievements, and our sense of self will all become powered, not by us, but by Jesus. And all will be transformed. And even as I say that, you know, I, I'm aware that, that when I, there's something deeply alluring about Jesus, and there's also something deeply troubling about Jesus. 
And Simeon anticipates this. In verse 34, he says, Behold this child, he's talking to Mary, Behold this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed. Um, one of the things that means is that all of us, in one way or another, will, will find G Jesus deeply threatening. That was true in his day, it's true in our day. In, in, in his day, it eventually leads to his execution. In our day, it tends to lead to our rejection. Uh, but there's a good reason why we find Jesus threatening, because if Jesus' beauty, seeing Jesus really is the goal of our lives that animates all other goals, and if sharing Jesus really is the mission that animates the lives of others and gives us a sense of purpose, then it also means that one of the most important things is surrendering our autonomy to Jesus. And as soon as we talk about surrendering autonomy to somebody else, I've talked about this before, it's just deeply threatening and offensive. And I realize that that's all the more coming from a religious leader like me, because a lot of us have very good reason to be profoundly suspicious about institutions like church. And I want you to know that right now I'm not asking you to trust me. I want to say, look at Simeon and Anna. They know all about corrupt religion. They've lived it for a long time. They're not naive. And they're not idealists or utopians or optimists, but neither are they cynical. And they're not pointing you to an institution or a tribal affiliation, or, or they're not trying to give you a marketing trick. They're telling you that there is a God who keeps his promises even when his people are abysmal. And that there is a God who is more intolerant of corruption and evil than you are. And that that God has become knowable in Jesus Christ. And that there is a God whom you were made to see and he has become visible by faith in Jesus Christ. And that without him you will never know the peace of fulfillment that you were designed for. And so what I want to say to all of us is, Emmanuel, there's a reason why we exist to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. And please, will you allow us, will you join in recalibrating us as a congregation so that our aim is a mimicking of Simeon's aim and a mimicking of Anna's aim, that our aim, that the great goal of our life would be to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, and the great mission of our life would be to reflect his beauty in our deeds, our actions, in our character, in the way we engage difficult issues within our city, and the way we speak. Grant that every word we speak at home, at work, at church, and so forth, is somehow a reflection of the beauty of the truth of who Jesus is, and as that happens, we will will find us, we will find ourselves wrapped up in the great story that has been going on for all time and that will lead us into the future, and that is a very fulfilled life. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.